There's got to be another piece to that, Tyler. Oh, 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 no, no, something else. <laughs> okay, so here's, here come some questions uh, for you on your talks. You know, things like, are you kidding me? Please explain. Actually, you need to back up probably because this question comes from somebody who is really a good student of history. Um, and so you're going to have to remind people of who it is that she's asking about. But here's okay. the question. What would it have looked like practically, that is the steps and the principles in the process, for Henry the Good to have gotten the people's consent to govern them? What would it have looked like practically for Henry the Good to have gotten the people's consent to govern them? Yeah, um, and I, I left that part out. It is a really long process of his battle. Um, but the short answer would be it would have been uh, just keep the path. You know, don't, don't give it. God was moving him into place. It didn't need machinations um, uh, to do it. Um, he, um, and even after that, um, he, uh, uh, so when he was... Um, Who's Henry the Good? Oh, yeah, okay. Let me go back. <laughs> yeah, yes, right, right, right. All right, uh, Catherine de' Medici, who is, um, uh, you know, related uh, to the Italians, and, and there was a lot of uh, bad vibes about her, and, and Machiavelli's the prince, and the French began hating on Machiavelli for that reason. Uh, she came to, she married into the royal family, and her, her husband died. The, France had been really stable before that because they had had really, uh, they had kings who had reigned for a lot of years, and, and frankly, in a monarchy, uh, one of the most important things is just don't die quickly. You know, uh, king, kingdoms last well when somebody lives to 70, and, and, they do, and they always have upheavals when they die sooner than that. And so there had been two kings that had lived um, long, rich lives, and then Catherine's um, husband died, and then she's regent. Uh, she's not the only regent. It's really messy. Um, and she has a lot of her sons taking over, but for various reasons, her sons um, either uh, are removed or um, can't, uh, can't rule. And then one of her daughters marries um, the queen, or is set up to marry the Queen of Navarre, that's northern Spain's son. Now, Navarre was Protestant, uh, France was Catholic. And now God had had this happen, moving a lot of much more able people out of the way to get Henry there. Um, it was probably a messy marriage to begin with because there was, of course, having a, 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 a Catholic marry a Protestant at a time when most of the creeds said you're not allowed to do that. Westminster says you're not allowed to do that. Um, it was a political maneuver, so it already has some problems. Um, but there was a dialogue going on all this time uh, that, that the Protestants uh, just were coming into power, and, and they were going to use the throne the same way the Catholics had been using it. So, of course, the Catholics had made the context for, under, for making their own terror because they had used the throne that way. Um, it, would it be used that way by our enemies? And, and that's one of the things where, um, where uh, Christians can't. You know, we, we can't, cannot do as it has been done unto us. Right? Uh, Christians don't react. They act. They don't, uh, decide, they don't do what, what the context is. They do what the Bible says. Um, so the biggest thing they could have done is simply said, um, we're going to act like our principles and not like you. Right? We're not going to do what you did when you had the power. Um, and that would have been the most practical way to do it. He just needed to stay the course. We're going to keep our principles, um, you know, and, and the rest would have taken care of itself. But um, the dialogue was threatening enough um, during that time that the Catholics got scared, and that caused the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. Uh, so uh, uh, while uh, most of the Protestant leadership was invited to Paris for the wedding of Henry uh, to Margot, um, uh, they, the, the ultra-Catholics um, uh, caused a massacre in the city and, and butchered most of the wed Protestant wedding guests, and, and they were all killed. Henry was cornered and told that he needed to renounce his faith or, um, and, and become Catholic or, or be killed, and, and he renounced his faith. Um, that was a problem. Um, but it wasn't actually, it, it wasn't the worst problem. Um, he did turn back after it was over. Um, uh, there was under torture and, and, and he was weak, um, but he, he did um, become Protestant again afterwards. God has much grace and, and that could have been the solving of it all. Um, and then later, uh, the, the, uh, Catherine's um, last son is dying and he t sends a letter to Henry saying, you're going to be made king, but I promise they're never going to listen to you unless you become Catholic. 
Make sense? And Henry, uh, for reasons of state, decided, I don't want to keep having these battles, so I will become Catholic. So this, the time he actually became Catholic, it was not under duress. It was by choice. Um, and he decided to, to do it just for the sake of political ease. I mean, he could have just kept the course, said, all right, we're going to have more fighting, but we're going to keep our, our course. And this time, there was no danger to his life. Uh, but he decided to, to renounce it at that point. And still, there, it might have even worked then. God is a God of manifold graces. Um, he spent a lot of time defending the, the Huguenot church. A lot of people felt he was a fake Catholic, and he really might have been. He wrote the Edict of Nantes, I don't know if you know it, um, which defended um, the Protestants in their realm. The biggest problem with that legal document is it put all the rights to him because he said, by my authority, at the beginning of the document. And that meant when he died, it all, all the protections for the Protestants went away. But in the end, the Protestants in France banked their safety on a man and not a change of law. Makes sense. So the Edict of Nantes was based on a person. Um, so there you go. There's the long history is that they just needed to keep the course. You know, don't get scared. What is the most common thing said in the Bible? Do not fear. Do not fear. Most common thing you're told to do is believe. Most common thing you're told not to do is fear. And most of our problems come from just, but if, you know. Thank you. Um, th there's a real practical question, but I'll, I might back it up with just a little bit of a, a more, more theoretical principled question. It was a question that we all um, had to deal with with the COVID shutdowns, um, not just with regard to church, but also as citizens. Um, what, are, are we in a different, because we are a constitutional-based republic, how does that change what it means to both submit to the government, and how does it also change, how did the, the founders of our country understand that um, in terms of their rebellion against the king? Yeah, well, uh, let me say two things on that. First, um, England thought of itself as a constitutional uh, monarchy. Um, they, you know, England not only has a Bill of Rights, we borrowed that name, right? Um, but they talked about their constitution. It included several documents, one of them the Magna Carta. Um, so they thought of themselves as constitutional. When they say constitution, they mean several documents, not one. But, but they were constitutional, so they're thinking in constitutional terms. Uh, if you read um, Franco Gallia, um, the... the um, uh, the study of France. France, uh, at least by the Protestants, was called constitutional too. So, so all, of these, um, all of these places are thinking about themselves as constitutional um, at the time. But our, but our very clear constitutional, I mean, we just removed all the problems with that um, by getting rid of all horizontal um, uh, authorities, right? The constitution is above everything, um, makes it just easier. I mean, my. Uh, I've been quoting it a lot. I'm a government teacher. So, uh, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, uh, one of the chapters we spend a lot of time on is where he thinks, uh, he, there's all these places where he says, well, America's not different than Europe. America's not different than Europe. It's the same thing. It's just the religion that makes it different. But the one place he says America is completely different, interestingly enough, is in the courts. This is what, what America did with its courts is absolutely incredible because the courts can actually overturn the executive and legislative branch. He says it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. I mean, he just thought the Supreme Court was a phenomenal new invention. And, and he writes, and it's a wise thing, he says, by so doing, they made the Constitution the highest power in the land. Right? So, so France had a constitutional setup, but the king was, was equal with the Constitution. Right? And that was the argument. Uh, England had a constitutional setup, and, and um, but, but the king saw himself as equal to the Constitution of America, just moved that by making sure that presidents and governors have to swear to uphold the Constitution. So when you, when you then come to Romans 13 and you say, it says obey your authorities, well, the number one thing is I want to. My authority, the authority of the United States is the Constitution. Right? So, so I'm, I'm dealing with a ledger, lesser magistrate when I deal with a president. I'm dealing with a lesser magistrate when I deal with a governor because they all have to swear to uphold the boss, and we can all get the boss. So for instance, in my state, in California, um, our constitution in California says that a, an emergency um, can only last for 60 days. You know? um, so after 60 days, that's when we met. And, and I was talking with our, um, our uh, Zach friend, our, our county seat, and I was talking with the sheriffs and I was talking with the health department and I'm like, listen, I, I need to obey the Constitution. It's only 60 days. I need to obey the word of God. We're meeting. And, uh, and we had been meeting in our parking lot before that, but we went inside at that point. And uh, uh, Zach Friend uh, told me uh, that he just 
can't make the decision because uh, Gavin Newsom was texting him every day what they were doing, uh, which is uh, crazy. And then um, the sheriff wouldn't talk to me. Um, and then, uh, uh, but the health department would. <laughs> they, they had lots of opinions. Um, but, but it was wonderful that they don't have executive things. And, and so uh, uh, in our wonderful church, uh, the head of COVID implementation was playing guitar on my stage. Um, so, so he just came and said, I, I couldn't get a call from the sheriff. And he said, well, the sheriff's not going to call you because if he responds, he's going to have to decide one way or the other. And it was nice hearing that because that meant we just met. He just didn't want to deal with it. Now, all that, that uh, anecdotal evidence is we're actually in a strengthened position in our constitutional format because we've, we've automatically put the Constitution over and not equal to our governing officials. It's a better place. Who are you supposed to obey according to Romans 13? The Constitution. That's who you're supposed to obey. Good. Um, and so, here in Washington, something that's coming up is a, an idea, just a wonderful idea from the governor's office. And was, instead of a gas tax, I don't know if this is happening in California too, Washington State is now proposing a road mileage surveillance <laughs> tax. Well, they just call it a road mileage tax. But of course, that's going to be kept for, them, for, for our benefit um, by a surveillance um, tactic uh, to keep track of where you're driving and how many miles and all of that. And so the question is, what is a godly, Christ-centered, holy in spirit <laughs> infused way to decide whether or not to submit to such a scheme? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well... Let me go. Let, let me just talk principles on this. And um, I mean, I think if you read the Vindicae Contra Tyrannus, you know, uh, this is he believes uh, that submitting to your leaders means there needs to be some leader you can submit to. Doesn't matter if he's the lowest man on the totem pole, there needs to be some leader. It's a great argument. This is why in California, you know, we had Oakdale where the, the sheriff just said, I'm not gonna follow it, and then people could submit to him. That, that's kind of the vindicii setup. Find someone who can support you. Um, I believe in fighting these things in courts. I think that's the way it was set up. I think that's a great way to do it. Um, uh, and, and I say that as a backdrop because in my class when we start um, doing each lecture, you know, we, 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 my lectures are, are not given titles, they're given questions, and so we start with what is the rule of law, what is consent of the governed, and we get to, is there a right to rebel? Um, and, and I'm giving an a, a American answer to this, um, but, but, the, but, but what we notice in the Declaration of Independence, it says after a long train of um, abuses and usurpations, right? So, so uh, we need to have the long view in mind. I think we need to have that definitely in Peter, uh, where Peter says, but if you suffer, you know, so, so the, this idea that it's, it's not going to go well your way for a while, right? Um, if you suffer. Uh, the, the Declaration of Independence, which was not a, not a, a fiery-headed document, right? It came after a long train of abuses. Um, you, you fight by the legal means. Is there a right to rebel? Yes, when, when all the other avenues have been tried and found wanting. Mm -hmm. That's when you do it. So I don't know if that answers what you're going to do with your crazy tax or your governor, but um, you, know, you, you, you don't run first to bayonets. You, know, you don't run first to guns. Uh, yeah. you, you run to the means you have at your disposal. Um, and you might get to a place um, where you say, well, I, you know, Acts 4 you know, you decide what you're going to do, but as for me, we're going to have to obey God. Yeah. yeah. We saw some of this, a similar thing in uh, uh, lesser magistrates in Washington State who would not uphold um, certain mandates that came from the governor's office, and, uh, and they just said they won't. And I think it's, it's important to understand that, the, the, um, the lesson of the doctrine of lesser magistrates, that you are putting, you're, you're not just standing outside as a lone Lone Ranger, I have rights, I have rights, but rather it's, it's I am submitting to an authority and God has granted me this other authority that I can turn to for help mm -hmm. um, is, is really important uh, to understand. Yeah. That and patience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and patience is key in this. If I were to say if there's, this is probably an exaggeration, but if I were to say what is the Bible teaching from beginning to end, um, 
uh, on just the to-dos we need to do in life. I would say the number one thing it's teaching is patience. Um, what's happening in the Garden of Eden, uh, God puts a tree there, and, it, and, and that tree is supposed to be exactly what they want. I mean, the book of Proverbs says that, uh, uh, that you should want the knowledge of good and evil. Like, that's something we're supposed to pursue. Um, it's, and it's what God gives the wise. Um, and God was saying, not yet. You know, that's what I understand. I said, don't eat the tree. Because obviously Solomon got to eat the tree. Right? Um, so it, it's patience. And then what's the very last thing he says in the book of Revelations? You know, or what does Jesus say right before he dies? You know, possess your soul in patience. And what is the book of Revelation on patience? Uh, you're not compromising your principles by being patient. You're compromising your principles when you turn around or stop moving, but, but moving slowly is not compromise. Uh, right? uh, shield walls uh, would go up and you're fighting enemies and they don't move fast, but that's not a problem. You know, they're not going backwards. That's the point. Good. Thank you. Per the Whitfield talk, if the gospel is the key to political change, if our political heritage was initiated from the pulpits, what role do specifically political organizations have like the Rutherford Institute? Are they futile because they pursue the end without the correct means? Oh, no. No, not at all. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> when, you, when, you want a, uh, when you're a boxing match, you want to knock out, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't throw all the other punches, right? I mean, I, you use every means available at all times. Um, it's not like um, uh, Jane, uh, John and Peter were wrong to defy the Sanhedrin, their representative body and their political leaders, um, because they hadn't received the gospel yet. Right? You, you fight all the battles. You just know that the battle won't stay won until the gospel gets in the heart. Right? So we're not saying do this, not this. We're saying this is the goal and do everything else too. Um, I think you should... I support a politician. I love him. He makes me happy. I enjoy uh, what our representative, our congressman Kevin Kiley, does uh, more than I enjoy watching TV shows. You know, I just watch him do what he does. It's just wonderful. And I know that it's not going to stick what he's doing until the gospel gets in the heart of these people he's arguing against. But it's just wonderful watching him, you know, take on, uh, you know. Merrick and, and people in, in, in uh, you know, the FBI. I love it. So we have it off your election, and ballots are due before Tuesday. Are you saying that you've got an idea for all of these people here to vote? Well, he's California. He's not going to No, I'm talking about Washington. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know who you are. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, Just that voting is a good thing to do. Oh, voting is very yeah, good. You, to say that the gospel is, is the means by which political change is going to uh, really take the hit is not to say that we should be politically involved or that we right. should not Absolutely. vote or that we should not. Yeah, and, and we, we, you know, one of, when I became a Christian, uh, the second book I ever read, the second Christian book, I, I told you my life can be measured in books. Um, the second book I ever read was, un, uh, was George Eliot's journals. Um, and, and George Eliot, I loved him. He, he moved me. You know, I was just becoming a Christian. And George Eliot has become to me, a, I didn't realize I got a lot of thoughts from him until I reread it later, but he, he is an absolutely non-interventionist in politics. You know, he, he uh, refused, did I say Jim Elliott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott. Non-interventionist, he, he wouldn't vote, he didn't get involved in politics, he would give speeches on why Christians shouldn't vote because their citizenship is of another world. So obviously if you're voting, then you're making the wrong citizenship, right? Or citizenships of another world. Um, and, and, and that was, was amazing for his time period. And I think there's a historical line you can do. Um, you know, we've got all of these, uh, I have no idea if I'm messing with you all on this or, or saying a history that will be uncomfortable, but um, you've got an amazing amount of, of just post-millennial uh, thinking uh, just right in the last part of the 1800s. Um, and then you get to the beginning of the 1900s and it goes secular. You know, post-millennialism, secular is evil, it's evolution, um, it's progressive politics. Um, it went, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, was a terrible president. He was also a Presbyterian, um, so I have a lot to repent for from me and my household. Uh, but he, um, I mean, he saw, if you read his writings, that he saw that, that the sacrament of his presidency was World War I. He said, this is how we're going to pay for the sins of the world. And he was sending soldiers to die. You know? So you have the next generation saying, man, 
uh, politics became too much uh, a part of the gospel. And so they just bottomed out, right? And so the, the rest of the 1900s is, is trying to separate politics from um, the church because it was so sick the generation before that, right? And, and then you have them also separating themselves from post-millennialism. Um, and and you, know, you read a book, uh, some, some well-written books on dispensationalism, and, they'll, and, and often the argument will be, but the opposite is post-millennialism. You know, the opposite is believing that we can improve things. The opposite, and what they're fighting against is their parents' generation. You know? And so now we're at another time where we're actually just getting back to our grandparents, well, hopefully our great-grandparents' ideas. But, but you know, when you're reading scripture, each generation falls away, and, and you see that even in America. I mean, most of our dumb ideas come from not wanting to do what our parents did. And so that whole generation that you just should not be involved in politics, it's an either or, is just the boomer generation. And we're saying, well, that didn't work out. And of course, we're open for new problems in ours. And, and the only way that we have to escape it, because we're not prophets to read the future, is to look at the past. You know, so what do you do? What, how, where did we make mistakes before? Well, we, we, we used our political advantages over our principles. You know, we, we, um, we didn't um, look for change to stay by the gospel, but by political means. Now, our, what you're bringing up right now is, is, should we, is it an either or? And I would say it's never an either or. It was the either or that got us into this mess, right? It's, it's the two generations ago, it was, it's politics, and that must be the gospel. The generation after, it's politics and the gospel. We need to keep them absolutely separate. And I think we should need to keep, um, the gospel is first, and don't stop doing politics. And that's, we need a hierarchy to our loyalties. Good, good. A couple of recommendations, or requests here for recommended readings. First of all, for George Whitfield, a biography, and then just generally uh, any book recommendations coming from your talks. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you're reading the best book on, on uh, Whitfield out there. Uh, the two volumes, Dalimore. If you don't want to read two volumes because you don't have time for it, Dalimore did a short one, too. I think it's about 200 pages. I think that's the most exciting read if you want to read one book from all of this. It's just, it's just Whitfield's life's just fun to read. And you'll do the things that I always feel responsible about when I do these talks because um, the danger of every person that likes talking about people is you make, you do a hagiography, you know, you make them sound too good, and you'll realize that these people had problems, which should comfort you too, because you do too. Yeah, so it's nice to know. Um, uh, George Whitfield has, has massive problems, spe specifically in his marriage life. Um, he just was a workaholic like nobody's business. And uh, he, it, one of his children was born on a Sunday, and he refused to be there because it was a Sunday and he needed to go preach. And, and the baby was lost, and his wife really needed his help at that time. Or he called her during another pregnancy to follow him on his, on his circuit, and she was pregnant, and, and she lost the baby. I mean, so you'll see problems with people, no matter who you read about, and that can be good. You're like, God, thank you for doing so much through this man that had some huge blind spots. You know, Dalimore's book's great. Um, for all the talks, absolutely. Uh, he's not a Christian, but... Necht, K-N-E-C-H-T, writes a teeny little book on the French wars of religion that is just, just golden. It's really a good book. And it's really short. I think it's less than 100 pages. But then all the pages after that are primary resources. Um, so if you like reading those things, I do. Um, K-N-E-C-H-T. And they update it every few years. Uh, in fact, uh, that group that does that, I think it's called the French wars of religion, um, does one on like the Thirty Years' War and a lot of the uh, religious... Wars happening in different places. It's great. Um, uh, I mean, Lexis de Tocqueville. yeah, uh, uh, Lexis de Tocqueville. Always, I, I don't think I think that book is too far underappreciated. It's too big. I mean, most people are going to get bogged down in it. Maybe you like reading it. It's two volumes. Some some places he's just long-winded, um, just drab. Uh, and then, then, but when he's golden, it's golden. If you want to know my favorite parts, I'll send you my favorite chapters. I'm like, everybody should read this, just for a taste of it. I mean, he has this wonderful chapter, and just absolutely wonderful chapter. I'm not only describing how the early constitutions of each state were set up, you know, and how they used the Bible, but he has a later one explaining why democracies always become materialistic. You know, they always, um, aristocracies, he says, don't, but democracies are always prone towards materialism. And so he, he predicts America is going to become more and more materialistic and more and more in pursuit of comfort. It's amazing. Um, and then he explains uh, that the more materialistic you get, the more you're going to be obsessed with weird spiritual experiences. You know, he says there, there's absolute religious insanity in America. I think he's talking about Mormons when he says it. 
but he says, you know, and, and he says this really powerful word. He says, because, um, because the soul has needs too. You know, and, and so we, we all run around uh, being materialistic, and then all of a sudden we realize, I need more. And then we get these weird, like, you know, you go, on, go to a yogi, and, 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 you know, or you get a crystal, and you start bowing down before it. And he explains it just beautifully and prophesies it all for America. So. There's some great sections in that one. Uh, of course, I think you should read The Loveliness of Christ. Um, it's short uh, by Rutherford. Um, if you want to read his political thoughts, there's no short book on it. You know, Lex Rex is enormous. Um, and his letters are enormous, but they're good. What else did I talk about? Um, Dal oh, yes. And so if, if I were to say the two uh, best books on like what's happening in America and what gifts did we get from the Bible that we don't realize, it would be Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, who was a Frenchman who looked at America and he looked with outside eyes, so I think he saw farther. And the most recent one is Vishal, V-I-S-H-A-L, Manglawadi. You don't need it, but the book is called um, This Book Made Your World. And if you want to just get me going forever, just ask me to talk about books. Um, that book is absolutely incredible. Um, it's big. He deals with everything. And you start, you can feel like my wife did, like, this is just too big. I mean, he's just trying to deal with everything. But basically, the point of the whole book is the Bible made everything we have in Western civilization. And he does it in a way that I've never seen done before. He does it because he's a Hindu, because he lives in Islamic town. And he just says, basically, America, you don't understand what you have because you're so rich in it. He tells it the, a number of places. I mean, he t talks about how in India he left the towns and he worked in rural India to help the poor. And they, were, they weren't poor. They were wealthy. But they were so terrified because people robbed each other so regularly because they didn't have the Eighth Commandment. It just wasn't practiced socially. That, that the more wealth you got, the more you put it in your walls. And so people would be living in these dingy homes, but because society wasn't based on just you don't steal, you know, uh, that, that nobody could, uh, the wealth didn't ha help, right? Yeah. That, that wealth is possible only because we don't steal. And then he goes to Holland, and, and he's with a friend, and they go into this dairy, and they're um, pumping milk, and, and the person that's running the dairy isn't there. And so the guy who's getting milk goes up to the counter, there's a bull there, and he makes change for himself. And he puts the money in there, and then they walk out. And Vishal's amazed. He said, in India, if you did that, people would just steal the money on the counter. And he says, but, but Holland, even though it's secular and unchristian, the churches uh, for 300 years always read the Heidelberg Catechism. And it just got in there. Like even a secular will go into a store and, because society is based that way. You just don't think about what you have. Wealth is only possible, he ends up saying in the chapter, because the wealth of the West, because there was the Eighth Commandment working for so long. Mm -hmm. so, like we say it all comes from capitalism. He says it comes from the Eighth Commandment. Or in another section, they're driving on the road his first time in the United States, and I think they're in Texas, and an ambulance comes behind him, and all the cars move out of the way, and the ambulance goes past, and he looks over at his wife, and she's crying, and he goes, what did I do now? Um, and she goes, how much these people love each other. And he says, it's amazing in America that, that people get out of the way for an ambulance. He says, we have ambulances in India, but no one moves because they all believe in karma. And karma means that they're deserving what they get. Why should I get out of the way for the ambulance? He says, you don't realize how wealthy you are. Yeah. Amen. Amazing book. Good. Okay, here's a question. If, if a kingdom is formed by consensus, it sounds like the authority comes from people and is granted by people. But the Bible says all authority comes from God. How do we reconcile the two? Totally. Um, and I want to do this by talking about constitutionalism um, because we, we talked that there were constitutional... constitutional um, governments before us. So uh, what you have, this is why the Middle Ages is terribly important. Uh, because if you see that the highest authority of the land um, uh, is God, make sense? How do you know his will, right? Um, and if you say scriptures, well, you still have, well, who, who, who opens those to me? That's the Middle Ages, right? And, and if you say, well, the man who's, who's going to, especially in an age which is um, illiterate, Right? How do you do that? And, and so what you had is that you had the interpreters become the rulers of authority, and this is behind all papacy. Right, right, right. Uh, how do we know what the authority says? If all authority comes from God. The person that has the authority is, can tell us what, it's, what the authority says. And, and so what you had is, and uh, um, why God sent the Middle Ages, so you have all these battles um, uh, starting long before the Reformation, but going into the Reformation, that, that, um, that the interpreter 
can be wrong. That's, what, that's why God sent the Middle Ages. The interpreter can be wrong, right? Um, and, and so what the Reformation is on a political level is it's saying how does the interpreter of God's authority be held accountable, right? And you could say, well, the Bible, but the problem was that the Middle Ages had the Bible, right? And people could read it. But when there's an argument, what do you do? And, and we do this in Presbyterianism. You get a plurality of leadership, right? The interpreter, I have elders that can tell me, well, that one was out of left field, right? And hopefully if I went really crazy, they're like, no, you can't have women pastors or something like that, right? The, the interpreter needs to be held responsible. So what, what you're saying in Presbyterianism is that there's a consent of others that actually controls the interpreter, right? And, and so what, what that is actually doing is it's moving consent of the governed up there. Uh, do you buy the rules and how do we know what the rules are? Right? And, and then what happens, we watch this in Exodus 14, Moses, Moses by God's instruction comes down, he tells people what the rules are, they say we will agree to it, and then the whole rest of the history of Israel is, is but, but are we following the right interpretation, right? That's a push for consent of the governed. A prophet has to come and say, you're not doing it. A priest has to come and say, this is what it says. Um, the problem, this is why you want consent of the government, because the opposite of consent of the governed is simply um, one person governing. Right? And all you're doing there is making papacy all over again. Right. I was thinking that the, uh, the whole idea that God has, well, all authority... God has all authority, but he explicitly delegated authority to us as his vice regents, mm -hmm. as he spoke to Adam. Totally. But then the, the problem is we're sinners. You know? So, so uh, you can run around saying everybody has authority, um, but somebody's going to do wrong. The guy that started my church, Bill Garraway, said the first time he realized that the law of God was important, he was a hippie, and you know, he's converted in a commune, and, and, and uh, you know, his, his first statement on becoming a Christian is, this is way better than cocaine. Uh, and, and so he's living in this commune and, and he, he's having a wonderful time and then all of a sudden um, a guy says hey can I borrow your guitar and he lets him his guitar and then he says hey can I get my guitar back and the guy says grace man why are you doing law on me you know and he says oh maybe the law has a point <laughs> you know um, the problem is we, we actually uh, we as Christians as God's vice regents can still mess up you know, and, and so we actually need people to keep us accountable, and that's really all consent of the govern is saying. Uh, de Tocqueville, in his book, Democracy in America, has this chapter. He says the amazing thing about America is that the courts um, can say, wait, you didn't follow the Constitution, and can annul it. He says that can't happen when there's a king, because he might be wrong in his interpretation, but no one can keep him to account on it. So you want consent of the governed because it's the only way to actually have a constitutional republic. Uh, otherwise, you've got one person interpreting the Constitution and... And it seems the only way for a governed people, for sinners, to, to be able to submit to the authority of God. Yeah, right. It can't be left in the hands of one. It can't be left in the hands of only, or even exactly. one group alone. Yeah, it, it, um, if, if we look at the whole Bible as a political book, God sets up a constitutional government at Sinai, right? And then the whole rest of the Bible is prophets saying, we're not doing it. Right? We're not doing what it says. I mean, you have to be able to hold power accountable. That's what prophets are. And notice God doesn't, God doesn't say, the king's wrong. Nobody listen to him. I mean, he, God says, tells one man, the king's wrong, and then makes him deal with it. And, you know, Jeremiah's life's pretty horrible from that. You know. But God likes working through prophets saying, that's not right. Um, so it's good to be that person. follow-up question to that, but probably maybe we've dealt with it here. Does God grant authority to a particular position, such as a presidency, or to a particular person, such as a president. This different understanding might have a significant ramification when come to deal with tyranny. When a person in authority corrupts and becomes a tyrant, should people continue to revere him as David towards Saul, or should people revolt against him to restore the rule of law? Ooh. <laughs> you want to sum that up for me? What is that? Okay, well, uh, I, I didn't write it, but I think. Um, so when, is authority granted to the office or to the person by God or to that person that took that office by God? Yes. How does that play, <laughs> how does that play out with when um, someone in a position of power uh, or a position of authority begins to rule as a tyrant? Saul and David as an example, David knowing that he has been anointed to be king and yet refusing to topple Saul. 
Oh, I don't, I don't know if I can answer this one well. Um, the, the answer is both. Uh, a bad husband um, is a bad husband, and so he should be resisted, and he's still a husband, right? Uh, is it in his office or in his person? I just, he can be resisted because he's doing bad. Uh, that's why uh, you, know, you, you would say, no, I, I'm, I'm, I can't do that, right? Um, if, if, a, if a dad tells his kids, you can't go to church, um, is, is his power in his office or in his person? Well, that, that's beside the point. God says, go to church. But he also says, respect your father. And so I need to go respectfully. I need to talk with the authority. And I need to say, I have to obey God. You know? and, and through a long train of abuses, you keep moving in that direction. Um, the goal is patience. So I don't know if I'm misunderstanding the question. But, uh, but the point is, resistance comes because we want to obey God. It's the only way resistance comes for a Christian. Resistance comes because I want to obey God. Does it work on lesser levels? Yeah, because um, it, we oaths should matter, right? I will, when the president says, I promise to keep the Constitution, that matters then to me at this point. If I can take something completely out of left field, and maybe this won't have any purchase on any of you, but if I'm dealing with a young man who's dealing with a, um, a pornography and something like that, um, one of the best tools, and I got it from Joe Rigby, but one of the best tools you can do is, um, is, is uh, he calls it starving the beast, but make him start a, making O's about when he won't use his laptop. And, and it's not for pornography, it's for like doing homework assignments or something like that. I will not do work on my computer if people aren't in the room. Make sense? Has nothing to do with it. But then when he breaks that, he has to confess looking at his computer when someone wasn't in the room. Even if he's doing something completely responsible, he's working on a homework assignment, it's a sin at that point, but it's a sin at that point because he confessed, he, he made a vow that he wouldn't look at it then. And Joe Rigby says that, that you make that vow because vows matter, and you want to start developing a tender conscience. And obviously you're not at something worse. Now, one of, that, one of the good points about his point is, is it actually becomes a sin when you make a vow and you don't do it. Right? That's how you start making a conscience tender. And I think we should do that uh, with presidents. The reason I want to say it's a sin if he doesn't obey the Constitution is because he vowed to uphold it. And that's the only way to keep him from later uh, sinning against the Bible and won't do it. Right? You, you, vows should matter to people. And that's why government in this country works by vows yeah. to the Constitution. Yeah, what an idea. Um, can you tell us any more about Aaron Burr being married to Ed an Edward's daughter? It's interesting that he was involved with this family, but yet did not seem to live a faithful life. What happened there? Yeah, yeah he didn't live a faithful life. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I told you the, the history of Jonathan Edwards' family, but if you follow it, I, I think um, one of his last uh, living relatives is a completely liberal feminist um, uh, congregationalist minister. She, she's quite outspoken that she's um, Edward's ancestor. Uh, I mean, you could say, man, there must have been something wrong with Edward's, but you could also say that about, um, you know, David. Like, what happened to his kids? You know, and yet God says, it's a man after my own heart. Um, you could say that about Jesus. I mean, remember, Jesus is, if you follow the genealogies back, related to Ahab, right? It's, it's kind of amazing that God you know, uh, is faithful to a thousand generations, but you can still botch it, and you can still gain great grace. Um, we'll have bad ancestors and descendants, uh, and Jesus had bad ancestors. <laughs> Just, there you go. Yeah. Okay, two related questions. At least that's what the questioner says. Number one, is there any connection that can be made between France's purging of the Protestants, the Huguenots, and the government they ultimately put in place, the French Revolution? Is there any connection that can be made between that? Um, I think it was um, uh, General de Gaulle, who later became President de Gaulle, uh, which said that France went through... Um, the French Revolution because of how they had treated the Huguenots at the, at the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. Uh, so he saw that, um, that, that what France had done to the Huguenots, because it was never repented of, begat the French Revolution. Um, and it is an amazing. When you read about the French Revolution, where is the church? You know, where did it go? It's almost, I mean, you have a number of communist priests who are helping it go, San Simeon and people like that. Um, uh, 
it's just gone. And, and, and I think the Gaul's right. The government they put in place is the kind of government you get when you kill the church. You know? um, and, and I want to say that not reminding you that the church really killed itself in that country. Make sense? I mean, not only did most of them move, those that stayed did not stay faithful um, in their own generation. I hope that makes sense. And then what did the Enlightenment do to the Reformation Christian heritage of government and rule of law? Modify it, twist it, steal it? Secularize it. Yeah. Um, uh, I think mo if you teach the... If you, I actually don't know about um, Washington, but if you go to a government class, do you teach it in your senior year in high school here? I'm assuming. I don't know. But um, maybe you don't teach it. <laughs> should teach government classes. But um, you should. Uh, it, what, what your curriculum is almost always going to be, it's John Locke, um, treaties, or, or more likely um, Rousseau's. You know, that's going to be, um, now both of those are almost 100% false. Uh, the Continental Congress rarely quoted from Locke and didn't at all quote from Rousseau. So the two sources we use saying, this is what America came from. Um, if you read Penguin Classics and you read the introductions, Rousseau will say our form of government came from Rousseau. If you read Locke, it will say our, our form of government came from Locke. And neither of them, well, Locke is somewhat quoted, um, but his book isn't even on Thomas Jefferson's shelf, and Rousseau's not quoted at, at, at all. Um, the two books we say our form of government came from weren't actually part of the debates. Um, but, but the Vindicii was, and Lex Rex was, you know, and, and that's not the books we have students read. So, so we just changed our history. Um, and what, what actually happened is uh, uh, Locke just took the ideas he got from Rutherford and he, he secularized them, you know, which I don't think is terrible. I mean, I'm always trying to take rules from the Bible and say, how does this apply? I don't think it's bad to make them apply to your day. And, but, um, but we just think they come from a secular source then. Yeah. Let's see, here we go. Um, is it fair to say that America's founding would have been impossible without the Protestant Reformation? Yes. Why? Oh, gosh. You want me to get up and do four talks? I have them all written yeah. up there. Um, uh, because the concepts that um, we built, the government we made from, from our war for independence, were, were scooped out of the Bible. Uh, because the people that could, could get these concepts established had been renewed by the word of God. That's why, you know, it's both the concepts and, and the new life that made America. But I grew up um, learning that America was founded because we didn't like England's rules, laws, and we wanted to be a free people. <laughs> and, it, and it had nothing to do with God or religion at all. It had to do with, we wanted to be a free people. We thought they were being really wrong in the way they treated us. And so we established a free country. So you went to public school too? Yes, I did. <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, this and America was founded because of that. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I mean, this is going to be an age-old debate. And it is uh, funny that God used... Um, let me tell you why I think... It, when you ask kids their founding fathers, I think the two they'll always talk about is Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Thomas, that tends to be the two big names. George Washington, but he wasn't actually in the debates. He was out fighting. Um, who else? John Adams. You know, it's funny that the three names we come up with are the three that were not faithful believers. You know, and, and there's a lot in that room, uh, but there's a reason why we always talk about those three. You know, um, because they were the ones that that were the exception, but they serve a secular basis. Um, America, uh, what America's uh, founding was based on trying for Englishmen that lived in these co co colonies to stay English. And England didn't want to treat them as English anymore. So for instance, you have a Bill of Rights in England, and it wasn't being fault. You're not allowed to tax, tax without representation, but Parliament was making taxes uh, on America, which is, was, has been denied since 1214 in England. So, so what, what they're saying when no taxation without representation, they're not making up a thing mad about taxes. What they're actually saying is, give us our rights. Can we have our constitution? our British constitution, in America. And the king was saying, your constitutional rights stopped when you left England. So the whole war for independence is really a battle to be English. Make sense? And all the documents leading up, the Olive Branch Petition, the, uh, the Declaration of, of the Rights to Bear Arms, all of those documents beforehand were pleased to have their British rights. 
And when it became impossible to get the British rights, that's why they made a Declaration of Independence. But then Thomas Jefferson is writing to a state saying, we're just, the Declaration of Independence is just simply stating things that Englishmen already have. So when you say we're rebelling against the king, well, what they were trying to do is get back to the British Constitution. And really, our form of government in America, when you have an American history class, it should not start with American Indians. It should start with the, the, the English Civil War, because that's what we were fighting for. We're fighting for English rights. And, and that does bear today. You know, you're, you're, our battles are not because we want to, uh, we don't like Gavin Newsom or, or uh, Biden. Our battles are because we just simply want our constitutional rights. Right? That, that's really what we're fighting for. Yeah. Good. You made an interesting comment at the beginning. Um, you were you you and your congregation and us and our congregation have both experienced that the people leaving just they can't, yeah. they can't take it in the stadium. I just can't take it anymore. And you mentioned that the biographies are written about people who stayed and fight and, and fought in different ways. Um, this is a, here's a question that came. Canon Plus just added the book Fight by Flight: Why <laughs> Leaving Godless Places Is Loving Godless Places. Uh, have you read that? or heard of that argument, and what are your thoughts on that? Oh, stop. Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> I, I, I can't this is say. a softball. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I cannot say that there has not been a book that has made my congregation more angry than that book. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I, I want to be <laughs> very careful here, because I like the guy that wrote the introduction to it. Um, <laughs> I think, so being gentle, I think it's a horrid book. Um, uh, but, but there is a number of stuff, that the man who wrote it, um, it there, there, you read his story and there's a number of problems that, that he got himself into. You know, he came to California because he wanted to make a name for himself. Um, he gave up a lot of things to be here, even getting paid a reasonable amount. Um, and then the book ends with him um, discussing how not to be bitter with the people that didn't leave California. Um, so, so he's working through a lot of decisions he made and, and stuff going on in his heart with his time in California. Um, so I, I don't think that's a normal uh, story. Uh, I was born in California. Um, I, I'm, where I'm a fourth generation Californian. This is where God brought me to faith. Uh, I was. I was converted and I lived in, in, in San Francisco in the Castro, uh, if you don't know, the gay central center of the world. Um, uh, this is where God saved me. And, and Colossians, or 1 Corinthians says several times, do not seek to leave uh, the position God puts you in. I mean, this is where God saved me. So I'm not leaving California and I'm not going somewhere to make a name for myself. So to that degree, the book doesn't apply. I'm being faithful where God called me. Um, and, um, and, I, and he also says that, that you are effeminate if you stay in California um, because you can't provide a house for yourself. Well, thank God he provided a house for me. I own my house. So there's a lot of that book I just doesn't work. Um, and I do think, you know, when Paul um, is talking to Tim, Titus and he says, this is, for this reason I left you in Crete to set up elders, what he's trying to do is get local people there to be the church there. You know, I, I don't think it's bad to move somewhere for a pastorate, but it does seem, in Titus at least, you're trying to find locals to be the church. And remember, he says of Crete that they're lazy drunkards and gluttons, and he doesn't say, go to Tennessee, therefore. You know, <laughs> this is find people that are responsible there to keep being You got an there. issue with Tennessee, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we've, we've had a massive amount go to Tennessee, so <laughs> taking pot shots. Um, now, all that to be the case, all, all that in place. Um, I don't think it's a great book. Um, I, I do think it's very uh, idiosyncratic to what he went through that it's coming from. There is this grain of truth in it, and it's a grain of truth that's all the way back in the Vindicii Contra Tyrannus. So in the Vindicii, he actually says um, you, have to work if you, you have to work through some magistrate. You know, God changes the government through the government, right? You, you want order, you want law. Um, and so, you know, if, if the king of, of France is being terrible, then go to the duke. If the duke is being terrible, go to the count. If not, go to your local uh, uh, shire reef in the town, you know, work through them. And then he says in the Vindicii, if there is absolutely no governor that you can use, then you should move because Jesus says, go to the next town. 
But, but he has this whole hierarchy of try and find a people to, to be with where you are. And if there's no one there, well, then you're Lot and get out of Sodom, right? But if there's people there, don't leave because it's hard to be the people there. Uh, so I think there is a grain of truth in that book, but I don't think he brought it out as the Vindicii did. Um, you're trying to stay. You're not needing to go. You're trying to stay. Good, good. I think one last question. Um, uh, as you and de Tocqueville and the founding fathers themselves say, well, you're, you're in good company then. As you say, consent of the governed, rule of law, etc., depend on a virtuous and moral Christian people. Given the extent of the spiritual degradation in this country and the extreme left's stranglehold on the institutions, wouldn't one of the better potential outcomes today, for today, be the rise of a Cromwell or a General Monk, Charles II, or even a Napoleonic figure? <laughs> well, that's definitely an option. Um, those didn't work out well. You know, it's not great. Um, I, in fact, I, I read that section, chapter 5, book 2 of, of de Tocqueville's um, that's where we're heading, right? He, he prophesied, and I, I think he's right, and I think history bears it out. Uh, you can't stay in the French Revolution. It, it, people are terrified of the liberty. They're terrified of the corruption, so they always go for a strong man, a Nephilim, you know, somewhere. You, you know, I need a strong man to run this thing. So, so we're aiming at tyranny. We're not aiming at anarchy. Uh, anarchy doesn't sustain itself, um, Right. What happens in the book of Judges? Every time that there's people doing their own mind, they, they, somebody is put in charge of them. And I do think, reading to Tocqueville, that a lot of that, that terror happening to, to Israel in the book of Judges was, was wanted. You know, well, at least the, the Canaanites can like, execute a murderer. You know, that's why you, you wanted to be terrorized. Yeah. You know? um, so we are pursuing a Cromwell by our actions. And he's way better than pursuing a Charles II. Um, but that's where we're heading. Uh, the, the, the goal in all of this is not to make that happen faster. It's that when we get to that point, do we have enough basis in place to be uh, uh, covenanters you know, in Scotland? Um, when, we have a, when we have a tyrant, do we have enough to be uh, a, 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 the churches of America and, and, and the black regiment? You know, um, we're going to have a tyrant because that's what happens. Uh, but do we have the basis make sure that, it, that what that tyrant does is not a Napoleon ruining a country, but, but is a Charles who can actually be resisted by a faithful crew and say, obey the law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Troy, for making the, the uh, trek up here and helping to save the left coast with us. We really Amen. My, my, wife, my wife loves to say to people in her counseling sessions that if, if, uh, if Paul did not tell the Romans to get out of Rome, then why would I tell you to go to Tennessee? That's right. Um, <laughs> God, God, God likes working in difficult places, so it's good to be with, uh, with people from Seattle. This is, this is where the excitement happens. And if there's history books, just know you're going to be in it. Would you show your thanks? Appreciation to this, and thank you very much. Grab your cantuses, grab your cantuses, and turn to uh, 239. 239 will close by singing Psalm 124. Hey.